Snow days in particular always bring back memories of the first winter when we started the church. We started in September of 03, and so a couple of big snowfalls that winter. And we started with a very few in the congregation, probably 15 people. And so there are a few times during the winter, during snow, we thought, this may be the Sunday when nobody else comes. It may be only the Cook family, nobody else here. Uh, we never quite hit that number, uh, but uh, we came pretty close a few times. Uh, we, we, back then, we paid someone to plow the, the driveway, and one time they didn't show up. So there was like, you know, a foot of snow out there. So I thought, well, the best I can do is I'm just going to try to pack it down. So I spent about an hour just kind of back and, back and forth with my own tires trying to, to pack it down. It probably made it worse, but that was my ingenuity of trying to sort of save the day uh, in the snow. Uh, so it's great to be with you uh, this morning, those of us who are able to, to be here, and we're glad for the, the gift of live stream for, for all of us to be together as well. For years, uh, particularly I think in the past, uh, little books like this were commonly carried around by Christians. They might put them in their back pocket, they might put it in their purse, their backpack. For years, I carried one in my back pocket, a little book just like this. Churches gave them away. What is this little book that I carried then? What is this little book that maybe some people, maybe some of you still carry? It was a pocket-sized New Testament. I assume they were created with a very good intention. The thought being, Bibles are big. New Testament is a smaller version of that. So if we want to encourage people to carry it around. Let's make some smaller versions so we can make it just the New Testament and people can carry it. It's a good motivation. Much more manageable, easier to carry around. However, I think it also perhaps unintentionally communicated something to everyone. And that is this, in order to be a Christian, all you need is the New Testament. To follow Jesus, if you have the New Testament, you don't need the Old Testament, only the New. So, so take that, carry that, use that, and you can follow Jesus. In fact, even beyond the small books, that thought is quite common among Christians. Whether we say it out loud or not, whether churches say it out loud or not, functionally, practically living as if the New Testament is all that we need. We think of the Old Testament as antiquated, irrelevant to daily life. And I wonder how you think about the Old Testament. If you think about it, what thoughts come to mind What's your attitude towards it? Do you think that the Old Testament actually has relevance for our lives today? Did Jesus come when he came to, to change direction? The Old Testament was going this way. Did Jesus come to take us in a whole new direction? And perhaps the most important question, what did Jesus think about the Old Testament? And that's some of what we're going to explore together today. What did Jesus think about the Old Testament and what should we, how should we think about the Old Testament? So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 5. Today will be in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 17. So in the Bibles we provided near you, you can find it on page 810. Page 810. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible or a Bible app just so you can see, or your pocket New Testament. Open it up so you can see exactly where I'm drawing this from. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. So in chapter 5, the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. We'll begin in verse 17. 
And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we would love to give you one. On the back table, the back of the room, there's a stack of Bibles there. You could grab one of those. And also throughout our series in Matthew, we have some journals that have only uh, Matthew in there. So we've gotten even smaller than the New Testament. We're giving you only a book of the Bible. Uh, but we think it's helpful because on one page is the text. The other place, page is a place where you can take notes if you like to. So those are free as well at the back of the room. So follow along as I read aloud Matthew 5, verse 17. This is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This morning in our passage, this is what we see, this main theme. Jesus Christ came to fulfill all of the Old Testament and to bring us into a deeper righteousness of the heart. Jesus Christ came to fulfill all the Old Testament and to bring us into a deeper righteousness of the heart. And we'll look at our text in two parts. The first, the fulfillment of Christ. And then second, the requirement of Christ. So the fulfillment of Christ, the requirement of Christ. The first uh, portion will be much longer than the second. So just know that going in. So first, we see the fulfillment of Christ in verses 17 and 18. Now we're continuing in Matthew. We've come to what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, like his most famous sermon, he goes onto a, a mountainside. He sits down and he begins to teach. This runs from uh, Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. And now we move to what, what many uh, scholars describe as the central portion of this sermon that runs from chapter 5, verse 17 through chapter 7, verse 12. And when you notice that this uh, portion is bracketed off on both ends by the reference to the law and the prophets. So we find that 517. We also find that in chapter 7, verse 12. Now our four verses today serve as a foundation and a bit of an introduction to this next portion where then following this, in the weeks to come, Jesus will lay out six different examples of what he's describing of the life that he has for his true followers and we'll look at that in the weeks to come. Now notice Jesus begins verse 17. He says, do not think. Now there may have already been some misunderstandings as Jesus has begun his ministry. This is not the only time he has taught. He had been doing some teaching. So there may have already been some misunderstandings. Or also very likely Jesus is anticipating. He knows some of the questions that will come, some of the misunderstandings that will arise in his teaching. So Jesus sets out to teach how he thinks about, how he relates to what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And throughout Jesus' ministry, this would become a great contention point between Jesus and the authorities as they would accuse him of being lax with some of the Mosaic laws, he and his disciples. And then as the church springs forth, as we move into the book of Acts, and we see the early weeks and months of the church, we see that the, the Christians in those days faced also some opposition as they began to understand changes that were coming because of Jesus. 
So back then and still, it's always been a significant question, what is the relationship of Christianity to the Old Testament? What's the relationship of the New Covenant to what we call the Old Covenant? And functionally, many Christians act as if the Old Testament is completely irrelevant to life today. So Christians just, we just don't ever read the Old Testament. And in fact, many churches do the same, almost never preaching from the Old Testament. So whether we say it or not, we act as if that whole portion of the Bible is completely irrelevant to our daily lives. So I wonder how you think about the Old Testament. Do you think of it as having relevance to you today? This week, your life. So Jesus says, verse 17, do not think, and he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. So what does Jesus mean by this phrase, law or the prophets? This was a phrase used in the first century in that day to refer to all of the written revelation of God at the time. The law here refers to what is called the Pentateuch or the book of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. So the law here refers not only to the commands of the law of God. Sometimes when we hear that, we're thinking of only the specific laws, and there are those within the law of God, but that's not what this is referring to. It's referring to that entire collection of those first five books of the Bible. And in those first five books, we see how God created the world, how he then chose a covenant people, Israel, How God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. How he made a a covenant with them and then said, after I have rescued you, I have now saved you. This is how you're to live in light of my great salvation as my covenant people. That's what we find in the law. The term the prophets was used to refer to the, the entire rest of the Hebrew scriptures. This included everything that was spoken of and written about and by the prophets. This also included the Psalms. So as Jesus talks about the law and the prophets, he's talking about all of the scriptures they had at the time, the entire Old Testament, in which we find the story of God's love and grace towards a covenant people, his faithfulness towards them, and his plan of salvation for them and for the nations. So then how does Jesus speak about his relationship to the Old Testament scriptures? He says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus wants to make very clear his purpose was not to come and somehow wipe out the Old Testament scriptures. It was not to scrap that plan and start a new one, but instead Jesus has come to fulfill those scriptures. So in the coming of the King Jesus into the world, he was certainly bringing change In fact, massive transformation. But this change was not a break from what we see in the Old Testament. But in fact, it was a continuation and a fulfillment of it. But how does that happen? How does Jesus Christ fulfill the law and the prophets? There are numerous aspects of this. One that we might think of first is he does fulfill many predictions we find in the Old Testament. So for instance, the the place of Jesus' birth was predicted. Bethlehem. So that would be a a prediction that Jesus fulfills. So absolutely, Jesus fulfills many of these prophetic predictions. But not only that, there are also aspects of fulfillment where Jesus' life fulfills so many roles and so many images, so many aspects of the life of God's people, Israel. 
And we can walk through the Old Testament and we can see again and again how Jesus fulfills. For instance, Jesus is the one promised all the way back in Genesis 3, where it was promised that the, the seed of the, the offspring of the woman would come and one day crush the serpent's head. So all the way back there was predicting Jesus, the one who would come and crush the serpent, referring to Satan. Jesus is the true Passover lamb. Jesus is the true and final high priest. Jesus is the true, the fulfillment of the temple. He's the true son of David who would rule over God's people perfectly and eternally. And we could walk through book after book of the Old Testament seeing ways that Jesus now fulfills what we see there. And there are promises made in the Old Testament that God made to God's people that because the Messiah has come and accomplished his work, these are now fulfilled as well. So, for instance, in the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, 33 says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So here, the Lord is speaking of the new covenant that was to come when the Messiah comes and completes his work, and this was what was going to happen. Their law, the God's law, would now be within God's people. He would write it on their hearts. He would be their God. God would be their, they would be God's people. The prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel 11, 19 and 20 says this, And I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. They shall be my people and I will be their God. Again, back in Ezekiel, looking ahead to this promise that was fulfilled because Christ has come, now God's people have new hearts. In fact, the very Spirit of God dwells within. Christ has fulfilled this. And friends, this is glorious news for all Christians. Christians, believers, are given new hearts. God writes his law on our hearts. He puts his spirit, the Holy Spirit, in us, enabling us to walk in his ways. All of this true because of Christ. And then certainly there's an aspect of fulfillment where Jesus fulfilled the law by keeping it perfectly. All the commands that God had given, Jesus alone, he's the only one ever who never violated one of the commands, but always kept them perfectly. So the idea of fulfill here is not narrow, but instead it's this broad, holistic picture of how Christ has fulfilled predictions and pictures and images and themes and aspects and has kept the commands of God. So friends, the coming of Jesus was continuing the plan of God, completing the plan of God. The coming of Jesus was not a new plan. It was not a change in plans, but there's continuity of God's great cosmic plan of redemption. Jesus then goes on in verse 18 to describe how it is not abolished, but it continues. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So nothing of it, not even the dotting of an I, a crossing of the T, as how we might say it, none of that will pass away until the last day. 
So because Christ has fulfilled the law and the prophets in his coming, in his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, this led to these numerous changes. It has been fulfilled, and now we await his return. That's the day this is pointing to. So until then, until the last day, still this word of God stands. Christ has fulfilled it. He is fulfilling it, and he will fulfill it. Now, for the God's people throughout the generations, there are ways that as they carried out trusting in God and obeying his commands, some things did begin to change because of Christ. So, for instance, for generations, the people of Israel would celebrate the, the two high points of their history as they would participate in the Passover and the Day of Atonement. Those were the high points because they pointed to the saving work of God. When God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, so then every year they would celebrate. God instructed them, remember that deliverance by celebrating the Passover. Celebrate the Day of Atonement, for this is God's rescue. So generation after generation would celebrate this. During Jesus' life as a boy, he would have celebrated Passover and the Day of Atonement. As he grew older, he would celebrate Passover and the Day of Atonement. Even during his life and ministry, we see Jesus celebrating. In what we consider the, the, the upper room, as Jesus, uh, his feet are washed, he gives a last teaching to his disciples, there they were sharing together the Passover. So Jesus participated throughout his life. But after Jesus' death and resurrection, his ascension, in the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, we see that Jesus' followers begin to no longer celebrate the Passover and the Day of Atonement. They would no longer get a Passover lamb and go to the temple in Jerusalem. They no longer looked to the high priests and other priests as they once did. Because Jesus' followers were beginning to understand they no longer needed a Passover lamb because the perfect lamb of God had come. Jesus was the true, final Passover lamb. They no longer needed to make a pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem for Jesus was the true temple where in which through him we know God. They no longer went to, to engage with the high priest or the priest because Jesus was the final, the great high priest. So what has happened? All those have been fulfilled by Christ. So to be clear, we want to notice Jesus did not show up and say, stop the Passover lamb. That's wrong. That's not what happened. So Jesus said, hey, yes, this, the, the practice of the Passover, the lamb was essential, but it was a pointer to the perfect lamb of God, Jesus himself. The Passover lambs were necessary again and again because there was no perfect lamb, but Jesus, he's the perfect Passover lamb. And so once he has accomplished his work, we don't need any other imperfect lambs because the work is finished. So here's a glimpse of how Jesus fulfills. So things change in the practices of God's people, not because they were bad or wrong, but because they have been completed by Christ. Friends, we want to see how Jesus fulfills the scriptures 
And we also want to think about how does Jesus think about the scriptures? How do the apostles in the New Testament speak about the Old Testament scriptures? And what we'll see in Jesus' words in the Gospels is that Jesus loved the Old Testament scriptures. He knew them, he loved them, he quoted them often. And so do the apostles in their writings. They loved, they often quoted the Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus makes clear all the scriptures are about him. In Luke chapter 24, we, we see this interesting uh, encounter. After Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, he, he's walking and he walks with some other guys on the road to Emmaus. And they, for some reason, don't recognize who Jesus is. And they begin to, to tell him about some of these events of this you know, big story in Jerusalem. And Jesus, the text tells us, begins to explain to them. And here's what it says in Luke 24, 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning him. So here's this moment where Jesus is explaining to these two, here's what the scriptures are about and hear how these scriptures are about me, Jesus says. So friends, if Jesus views the Old Testament scriptures in this way, then shouldn't you and I have a high view of them as well? If he loved them and knew them, shouldn't we love them and know them also? Now, some people say they like Jesus, but they don't like the Bible. Or probably even more common, they say, I like Jesus, I just don't like the Old Testament. Lots of people would say that. We should notice that Jesus doesn't give us that option. Jesus loves the Old Testament. Jesus fulfills them. The Old Testament are about him. The fact is, I can't know Jesus without the scriptures. For it is there that he's revealed to us. Jesus wants you and me to trust, to value the entire Bible, Old and New Testament. And it may be that you're a Christian, you've been one maybe for some time, or you're new, and, and you come to realize that maybe you don't know that much about the Old Testament. Maybe you've rarely, if ever, read it. And I would say to you, don't be discouraged by that, or don't feel any guilt or shame by that. It, it, it is harder to read them, typically. And you may not have been in a church that encouraged that. I just want to encourage you, though, to think about what would it look like to begin to grow in your understanding of the Old Testament. And the most basic, helpful way would be to begin to just read just a little bit of it each day. So as we continue, we'll continue in Matthew on Sunday morning. So, so keep reading along with us. Matthew, maybe say, I just want to read a, a few paragraphs, a little bit, a few times a week from the Old Testament. You might start in Genesis at the beginning. You might want to choose one of the, the great prophets, Isaiah or Jeremiah. You might pick up the book of Psalms and just begin to read. It is challenging because we're, we're crossing a larger amount of history, that there's a lot going on, so sometimes it's helpful to have something like a study Bible. Study Bibles have just a few notes at the bottom. So if you're reading a, a prophecy, let's say in Jeremiah, at the bottom and say, okay, here's what was going on in uh, Ju uh, Judah at this time. Here's who this king is. So just a few details. So something like that. And if you're interested, I'd be happy to tell you some recommendations of some good and helpful study Bibles as well. That's also why here at the church at Hope, we, we regularly preach through both the New Testament and the Old. 
So if a starting place for you might be just to begin to listen to some sermons from the Old Testament. So you could go to the church website. And there, uh, in the archives, you'll find uh, Old Testament sermons. And so you could listen to some of those just as you go about your, your week or you're on the tee or you're exercising. That might be another way as well. In my own uh, regular time in the scriptures right now, I've been reading using a, a two-year Bible reading plan. So it just gives you some readings each day so that across two years you can read it. And so this January, so I'm in year, I've started year, uh, year number two of the two-year plan. And so this week, there's this little thing that tells you to read. And so I've been in the prophet Jeremiah. And so just this week, as I followed along, I came to Jeremiah 29 and following. Jeremiah 29, 30, 31 that we just read a few minutes ago. Where we see God's word to his people in exile. A promise of his faithfulness, but then also the promise of this new covenant that was coming. Of the coming of the Messiah. And as I read that morning, as I sat there with my cup of coffee, just regular reading. I was just stirred again at God's great plan of redemption across generations his faithfulness to promise and to fulfill to to promise a savior and to send a savior and friends that's what god has done and what an amazing and gracious god we have we want to see and appreciate the beauty of this plan that crosses so many years so many books of the bible and yet is coherent holds together this one great saving plan. As we think about reading the scriptures, there's a greater richness and fullness as we begin to read the scriptures looking in both directions. After we begin to see and understand the life and ministry of Jesus, and then we look back to the Old Testament, then we begin to see, oh, this is about that. So, for instance, if you, you've never read any, you read in the Gospel of, of John, and John the Baptist sees Jesus, and he says of Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Just at a first reading, you can get a, a gist of what he's saying about Jesus. But then let's say you begin to read back in the Old Testament, and you start reading about the lambs that were sacrificed. And you're like, oh, this is that. And so we look back, and we understand more and more of the Old Testament. But then also the more we read of the Old Testament, we come to the New, and Jesus and the apostles are quoting and alluding to the Old Testament, and there we have a foundation to understand it. Now we do want to remember this. A person can know absolutely nothing about the Old Testament and become a Christian. We absolutely believe that. They just need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, his glorious saving work. That's sufficient to enter into this new life in Christ. But then after coming to believe, it's, it's wise to, to seek to want to grow in our understanding, to understand more and more of the scriptures. One of my favorite musicals is the classic musical Les Mis. If you've ever seen it before, I don't want to spoil the ending, but it's been around a long time, so, so if I spoil it, that's kind of your own fault. But, but it's, this, it's this moving story. And let's say that, that you were going to go watch it uh, downtown Boston, but there's a snowstorm and you got there late. And you walked in kind of well into Act 2. So you didn't see any of it until the kind of the last 10 minutes. Well, if you saw the last 10 minutes, at the end, you'd be like standing and cheering like everyone else, I think, at the end as well. But also you'd be getting a bit of the story. At the end, I think you could put together a few pieces of who Valjean is, and Marius and Cosette, and a little bit of, okay, this is connected to that. 
And so I think you could walk out with just 10 minutes and have a little bit of the story. But the next time you watch it, let's say you start at the beginning, you get there on time. And as you begin to watch, you remember those last 10 minutes. And now you see, oh, this is who Valjean is. I know it happens at the end, but look at how it starts. Oh, here's Marius and Cosette, and oh, I remember what's going to happen. And here's this piece of it. And because now you've seen the end, the beginning has fresh meaning to it. And friends, that's why one of the reasons that people sometimes enjoy, like watching something over and over, is you pick up more and more details at the beginning of a movie or a musical that, that plays out at the end. Well, friends, in Christ, we have the ending. And now we go back and we see a richer, fuller picture when we read all of the scriptures, when we embrace and love the Old Testament as well. Friends, Christ has come to fulfill, and that changes everything. So we see the fulfillment of Christ. But then second, and more briefly, we see the requirement of Christ. Verse 19 and 20. Look down at verse 20. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We've seen this theme of the kingdom of heaven repeatedly already in Matthew. We've said Jesus is the king. And because the king has come near, the kingdom was breaking in. And we've seen already that humans are not by nature a part of the kingdom of Jesus. We're not all automatically in. One must enter into the kingdom. And here, Jesus lays out an entrance requirement. Your righteousness, meaning your, your godliness, must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. So he says, here's a bar. You must exceed that bar. So what's the bar? What was the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, those who were hearing Jesus that day knew well that the scribes and the Pharisees seemed to be extraordinarily righteous. I mean, to the average Jew of that day, to say, I need to exceed the godliness of the scribes and the Pharisees, that would seem to be an impossible task. Their, their outward devotion, their keeping of the law was so intricate, so committed, that when Jesus says this, this seems like unattainable. And notice that Jesus says even their righteousness is not sufficient. So he's not saying they're in, exceed them and get in, but... There has to be more than them, so, so they're not in either. Now, what was lacking in their righteousness? And what would it look like to have a, a greater righteousness, to, to exceed their righteousness? We'll see more as we walk through the Gospel of Matthew. But we'll see Jesus will confront these religious leaders because their righteousness was primarily external. Outwardly, they were very committed to keeping the law. And in fact, they were often self-righteous. They wanted you to know they were keeping the law. That they sort of gained influence because they were so apparently effective in keeping the law. But what is a righteousness that exceeds theirs? It is a righteousness, a godliness that is more than external. It is deeper it is a more full, holistic. It involves actions, yes, but also the heart. 
And we'll see this next week, as next week we look at the topic of anger. And we'll see that, that not murdering someone is certainly good. But Jesus says it's not only that. But it's also what's going on inside my heart towards this person that matters. So the righteousness that's necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven is deep and full and holistic. It involves our heart, our thoughts, our actions, even our motivations. And if we truly hear what Jesus is saying, these words should overwhelm us because none of us can possibly do it. The Pharisees, the scribes couldn't do it. We can't do it either. None of us can attain this level of righteousness. But the good news is that we see across the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus Christ came and he has done this. He has done this perfectly. And because of Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection, he's made a way for us to receive this free gift of grace from Jesus the King. And in this gift of salvation, we are credited with Christ's perfect righteousness. So his perfect record in every way, his holistic righteousness is ours. And on the cross, he paid for our unrighteousness. He paid for our sin on the cross so that we could receive his righteousness. And then for those who've received this free gift of salvation, who've been brought into his kingdom, we're now called in this life to seek to grow in daily practical righteousness. We've been made right by Christ, and we're called to grow in godliness, to make progress day by day. And the good news in that journey is, is, as we saw earlier, this new covenant, we now have a new heart. We've been made new by Christ. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. Christ, who's ascended to the Father, he intercedes for us. We've been given the church to spur us on. And so through that, God's people, you and I, can make progress day by day to live more and more in line with the kingdom of Jesus. So when we hear the call of Jesus to this righteousness, we come to realize we can't do it. We could not do it. And we need a Savior. And friend, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad, especially if you're with us in person, you've trekked here in the snow, we're so glad you came this morning. But we want you to know the story of Christianity is not of us somehow attaining a level of righteousness by which we earn salvation. It is the fact that none of us can be good enough. But there is a good and gracious, perfectly good, gracious, loving, merciful Savior who came to provide this free gift, his own righteousness, credited to us, to any and all who'd receive it by faith. We'd love for you to know more of that free gift. And for those who are Christians, we can't do it, we couldn't do it, we wouldn't do it, but now, through Christ, as the Spirit works in us, we can. We will. Friend, you can make progress and grow in godliness. That's the good news for those who are Christians, that in this life, because of Christ. The way that we responded two years ago does not have to be the same way two years from now. We, we can make progress. The sin that entangles you today does not have to entangle you six months from now. Friends, that's the hope of Christ in us, and that is good news. And as we think about this, we want to be careful not to mislead others, we see in verse 19. 
We're not to, to teach people less, to lessen or lighten the teachings of Jesus. Instead, we want to be those who do the word of Christ and who teach others to do the same. As we move forward, as I mentioned, these verses are foundational for the coming weeks. So, for instance, next week, as we think about anger, we need this foundation where we'll be reminded throughout this sermon again and again, on on one hand, of our own inadequacy. I can't do this, but Christ has. We have a Savior. And if Christ is my Savior, I can make progress. In fact, I must pursue progress. So we don't listen to the sermon of Jesus and say simply, I can't do it, Jesus did it for me, that's it. We say it's good news that Jesus has done it for us. But Jesus is actually calling us to live in light of this. And the Spirit dwells within you, friends, so you can do that progressively more and more. When our King has come, continuing God's great eternal plan of redemption, of salvation, fulfilling the Old Testament and opening the way for you and for me. He's made a way for us to enter into his kingdom and live the truly kingdom way of life. Marked by his grace, empowered by his spirit. And friends, this is good news for us today. It's good news for us as we look ahead to this sermon. It's going to press on different parts of our lives. By God's grace, friend, we can make progress. By God's grace, change can come. Because of our Savior, we can have hope. This morning, it was a means of response. Several ways we'll respond. One of those is we're going to bow our heads for a time of silence in just a moment. And in those times, you might just consider, have you ever come to trust in Christ? Or maybe think about, you know, how do you actually think about the Old Testament yourself? And maybe to think, I, I need to become more acquainted with it or grow in my uh, affections for it. Well, uh, another means of response is the connection card, both online and in person. Maybe some ways we could serve you or pray for you in light of this sermon or just in light of life's circumstances. We would love to serve you by praying for you. So we'll bow our heads for a time of silence, then I'll lead us in praying, and then we'll sing together. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we're so thankful that we have the scriptures. Here in this country, we have so much access in our own heart language. So we count that a great blessing. Help us, Father, this, this week to take advantage of that, to grow in our love for your word, our intake of it. I pray for some who've maybe not spent a lot of time in the Old Testament. I pray they wouldn't sort of be, uh, feel guilt about that, but they would be eager to grow in that grow their understanding, and and through that they would see more of the beauty of Christ and your glorious plan of redemption. Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand and see that, no, we can't be righteous on our own, but because of Christ, righteousness is ours as a gift, and we can make progress daily in growing in righteousness. So empower us this week. 
Give us joy in that pursuit. In Jesus' name, amen.